0: The scripture reading today is taken from Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do.
1: Today we're beginning a very short series on Romans 8. So uh, for those of you who are visitors or new, um, I am one of the interim pastors who's called to uh, help out where I could as Liberty was growing and changing in a new season. And now that we have called a new pastor, Scott Crosby, um, I will be here for four more weeks and then um, we'll be moving to Asheville where I'll be the lead pastor of a church called Trinity. Um, And I'm still humbled and amazed and thankful every time I say those words. But um, so I decided to leave you guys with a a very short series, a four-week series, on Romans chapter 8, which is a chapter about the freeing power that comes in Christ's spirit. And I basically want these four sermons to be um, four prayers for you and for this community that I have come to know and love over the course of the last year. It's been almost exactly a year. Um, And the prayer this week is that in the coming weeks and months, you'll become more aware of the Spirit's presence within you. More aware of the Spirit's presence within you. I'm I'm actually going to pray again, and then we'll look at Romans 8. Jesus, even in speaking of your Spirit, I am aware of how often... I want to do things in my own strength and in my own power and how I come not willingly to worship, but kicking and screaming against where you would guide. So I pray that you would use me and that I would yield to your spirit today and that all who are here would yield their hearts to you. Lord, we know so much already. I don't think we need to know more. We need to live more in light of the truths that you are presenting us in the gospel and in Romans, and particularly in Romans 8. So would you be at work? We invite the spirit of the living God who dwells within us to speak to our hearts. Will you speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my confession is this. I have recently become addicted to Harry Potter. (laughs) Now I know that's kind of cool, but at the same time, it like dates me by about 10 years. (laughs) So I'm 10 years behind the times, but my kids are old enough to have have started reading Harry Potter and they just love them. So they're like flying through the books and I'm thinking, what is this stuff that my kids are reading? So I decide to sit down and read the books with them. And what we do is we basically listen to about a chapter a night of the audio books with Jim Dale. It's awesome. Like, go get it from the library. Don't buy it. It's really expensive. It's like $1,000. But <laughs> he's a professional actor, and he could do all the voices, and it's really it's really amazing. So, um, listening to a book on tape, uh, on CD, about a chapter really every three days or so is when we get around to it. We listen to all of book one, all of book two, and we're right smack dab in the middle of book three. Okay. Now, um... And I'm the one. <laughs> Every night I'm like, come on, guys, we've got to listen. <laughs> so now I'm, t- I'm totally sucked in. It's not the kids anymore. They've blown by. They like get the book and just read ahead. You know, they're in bed late at night reading and trying to figure out what's going on. So uh, I was thinking as I was preparing for the sermon about one character from book two, the Chamber of Secrets, whose name is Dobby, um, and he is Lucius Malfoy's house elf. I realize if you've never read Harry Potter, I just lost you. (laughs) But if I could explain it, basically these wealthy wizarding families each have an elf who functions as a kind of despised, miserable slave or servant going around doing all of the master's dirty work, kind of a worthless good-for-nothing who gets kicked around all the time. And in book two, Chamber of Secrets, Dobby, I don't know if he even appears again later in the series, does he? Sweet. Okay. Okay. (laughs) is it okay to read harry potter on the sabbath (laughs) questions only a presbyterian would ask okay dobby is attempting in book two to warn harry potter that someone is trying to kill him but along the way he ends up nearly killing harry potter like three or four times so he's kind of a bumbling idiot and what fascinates me about dobby is um, particularly how he treats himself so every time he makes a mistake every time he screws something up every time somebody says no stop dobby you're doing the wrong thing he like bangs his head against the wall You know, or he throws himself into a lamp, or he just starts hitting himself in the head, you know. So this is, like, great. It's even better in the movie because he's kind of this weird little guy, and he's, like, throwing himself around, and he's wailing everywhere. And here's what I was thinking about Dobby. I think Dobby has been treated like a slave for so long. He's been treated like a slave for so long that he even treats himself like a slave, even when his master's not around. Even when Lucy's mouth is not nearby. He's been neglected. He's been abused. He's been condemned. So he neglects himself. He abuses himself. He condemns himself. And here's the thing. Abby picked up on this earlier. I said, hey, Abby, I'm going to use Dobby as a sermon illustration, which she thought was the greatest thing. And she says, are you going to tell us we're all like Dobby? (laughs) yes (laughs) yes 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 you are i imagine many of you are a lot like dobby and i think i am too so sin has been beating you up for so long it's like kicking you in the teeth that basically what you do is you continue the process and are beating yourself up over what it's doing to you And, and and just as in the books. Um, You know, Davi's actions appear ridiculous. I mean, he's a funny kind of joke character um, in the books and in the movie. If you stop to think about it, for the Christian to beat himself up or to beat herself up, and what I mean is, like, giving in to to feelings of guilt, giving in to um, wallowing in self-pity, isolating yourselves, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous thing to do because you are admitting that sin is your master. And the, 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 this essence of the Christian life is sin isn't your master anymore. Jesus is your master. You're following Jesus. So for you to kick yourself in the teeth, for you to think that you are under condemnation and burdened by the master of sin, which is sin, you're doing something that Paul finds totally ridiculous. It's counterintuitive. You know, he's like, why are you guys doing this? As I was reading Romans 8, I just kept thinking of Paul just like stamping up and down and, and you know, kind of getting really excited about what's happening What we're doing is we're allowing sin to define us. We're seeing ourselves through its lens. We are playing according to its rules. But Paul's message to the Christian is this. In Christ, by the power of his spirit, the enslaving effects of sin do not have power over you anymore. The power of sin has been broken, and that means two things. Fundamental there is you do not have a guilty record anymore. But that's not what Paul's talking about in chapter 8. He's already talked about that in chapter 3 and 4 and 5. By the time he gets to 6 through 8, he's saying it's not only that guilt is gone. It's not only that you don't have to remember your sins anymore. It means you are free. You are free now in the present from the working and the power of of sin, You have a new master. Jesus is your new master. And because in Christ the enslaving power of sin has been broken, he's calling you to appropriate the Spirit's power. He's calling you to appropriate the Spirit's power in his fight against sin. And I'm using that word appropriate intentionally because this is not only a reminder that you're free in Christ. Okay? It is a reminder that you're free in Christ, but you have been told that you're free in Christ. And if you are not a believer or you are not a Christian, this is an offer to be free in Christ and to receive freedom from the enslaving effects of sin. But you have heard that message before, many of you. But it is also an invitation to act upon what you know, to become more of who you are. So I was talking to Julie at 11 o'clock at night last night, and I won't tell you how much of the sermon I had finished at that point, <laughs> or how long the week had been, but I, I said, I said, Julie, sometimes I feel like Peter, the Apostle Peter, you know, I think it's in Second Peter, he says, hey guys, sometimes Paul's messages are very hard to understand, <laughs> and I was like, Romans 8 is very hard to understand, do you understand it? <laughs> It's not a very fair question for the preacher to ask his wife, you know. Explain to me Romans 8. And Julie said this, if I understood it, I would be a different person. If I understood it, I would be a different person. And what she meant was this, I know the information. I know the information, but has it changed me? Has it worked its way in? Have I internalized it? Has it transformed me? You can't simply assent to these truths. You must. That's what the call is. But you also need to submit to the very real presence of the Spirit as He gives you His power. So I want to look at three things today as we work our way through the passage. First of all, 3 let's call it three steps for appropriating the Spirit's power. Here's the first step, number one. The first step in appropriating the Spirit's power is to see your need for it, to recognize your need for His presence, His controlling power and authority. Otherwise, you're doing everything in your own strength. You're doing everything in your own power. You're pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, where do we stand without the Spirit's presence? And Paul tells us in Romans 8. Take a look back at verses 1 and 2. And what I want you to see is that Paul is basically, um, in this entire passage, he's kind of holding up two photographs. And one is the crystal clear, well-developed photograph of what life in this spirit looks like. And the other is sort of like the the photo negative. It's like the contrary side. What your life would look like as a shallow, hollow image without the spirit and without the spirit's power. And that's what I want to talk about. We need to see our our need first. Okay. Look at verse 1. If there is now no condemnation in Christ's spirit, then without that spirit... What is there? There is condemnation. And that's important to know because that means that's the natural state of affairs. That's the normal, ordinary human experience. You should not be surprised that condemnation is attacking you. You should not be surprised that you have feelings of guilt. You should not be surprised to be downcast and downtrodden and that it keeps resurfacing because that's the natural state of human affairs for those who have rejected the creator who made them and chosen to worship something else you will receive condemnation you will feel the, the 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 visceral effects of that nagging sense of guilt okay but there's more there's even more look at verse 2 if the spirit has set you free then without that spirit you are a slave so you, you not only have that experience of feeling condemned you actually are trapped by sin and this isn't good it kind of reminds me uh, you can't escape it my favorite scene from the very first star wars i was talking to somebody at the home meeting leaders retreat yesterday about this i think it was johnny was is that scene where they're in the trash compactor Do you remember? Because it's like, it's totally cheesy. I mean, we've got like a foam thing that's supposed to be a metal bar and the walls are closing in and there's like a weird lizard kind of pulling everybody down. But, But that sense of helplessness, you know, they're kind of like, I can't escape it. I can't get away from it. The walls are closing in. There's nothing that we can do. It's coming from underneath. It's coming from around. It's coming from everywhere. I am trapped. That's what it feels like to be enslaved to sin and condemnation. And Paul, throughout the rest of the the passage, he calls this walking according to the flesh. And in verse 6 through 8, he says that, that walking in that way, setting your mind that way, is death. It doesn't lead to death. It is death. He's basically saying, you are dead without the Holy Spirit bringing you life. You are a dead man. You can't please God. Your hostility to God. He uses all sorts of phrases. He just piles them up. He's, he's not, not mincing words in the least. So let me give you an illustration of this. Um, if you guys remember, uh, have you read Brave New World, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? Show of hands. I'm <laughs> just kidding. you? <don't> <laughs> In Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, he imagined a world in which, wh- where the government would distribute drugs to people, SOMA, and the, the idea was that it would kind of um, help them to feel better about themselves so that they can then do whatever they want. So the government actually encouraged people to go around having sex with anybody they want to and go around just entertaining themselves and all those sorts of things. And what I used to do when I was teaching uh, 12th grade English on the first day, I would put a book down on every desk, Brave New World, I'd have them read the intro, and then I would say, could you imagine, I'd tell a bunch of 12th graders, could you imagine a world where the government said, take drugs, have sex, do whatever you want to do? You know, and they're all like, why is my 12th grade English teacher telling me this? But there's always like a few bros in the back who'd give each other a high five, you know? They're like, like, yeah, man, that'd be awesome. But... As they started to read the book, they realized it is not a utopia, it's a dystopia, it is not a perfect world, it is a hellish nightmare because the easiest way, Huxley's point is, to control people is to give them what they think they want because then they're never going to throw a revolt. They're never going to rebel. They don't they don't have anything to stamp against because they're blind, they're sedated, they can't think straight, they can't love straight. They are basically dead and don't even know it. If you're being trampled down, you know it. You can say stop this, stop this, stop this. But if you're being trampled down and wants more of it, it's impossible to fight against it and that's what sin does. It works just like that. Now, the trick, the problem with Huxley's Brave New World and with Soma is this. They have to keep taking it every morning. And if they don't, the nagging effects return. The nagging effects return. But let's 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 move forward a little bit. So sin works like this. Look back at verse 2 again. Did you notice Paul said it's not just the Spirit, it's the law of the Spirit that set you free. And what does it set you free from? It sets you free from the law of the Spirit of sin and death. What does that mean? It means sin is working like a law. All right? Hang with me here. What Paul is doing is like some super crazy logic, but let me try to explain it. How does a law work? A law is is an authority that gives you reward for obeying it and gives you consequences for disobeying it. Is everybody with me? Okay. So if you obey the speed limit, you get a reward. The speed limit's a law, which I know you all obey. I won't call out any names. <laughs> if you obey the speed limit, you get a reward. You get a police-free, peaceful ride home, where everything goes fine and normal. If you disobey the law, you get consequences. What are what are the consequences? You, the police intervene. They give you a ticket. You pay money. They may take your license. Okay. And sin works in just the same way. Imagine um, you want other people's approval and you get into a situation where you've really screwed things up and you need to tell somebody, but you decide instead to lie to your friend. You're going to lie to everybody to cover up how much of an idiot you have been because you want their approval, you want their acceptance. What's the reward? The reward of staying in that way is that you don't have to feel like an idiot. You don't have to face their Uh, their their wrath you don't have to break the relationship off nothing bad something good actually comes that's the point if you sin you get something good otherwise you wouldn't sin right okay but if you disobey sin it also pulls you into its grasp by 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 meeting out consequences and penalties for what you do so if you go to your friend and admit the thing that you've done and you choose not to lie what happens it hurts you have to face the awkward conversation You have to recognize um, that you you may lose your reputation. You may have lost your friends. But here's the thing. The law is not neutral. Notice, look back again. He says, it's not only the law of sin, it's the law of sin and death. And so sin is not just neutrally pulling against you. It's trying to kill you. It has an end in mind. It has a goal. And the only way to stop it is to recognize that it's attacking you and working against you and find a way to hate it And so if we ask the question again, where do you stand without the Spirit? You stand in desperate need, in desperate need to receive sight, in desperate need to be woken up, in desperate need for life and for renewal. And um, that waking and renewal that you need is not just a one-off thing. It's not just a one-time event. It's something that you stand in need of again and again and again throughout your spiritual life and your spiritual journey. And and if you think you're alone, if you turn back to, to, to Romans 7, one of the last verses in Romans 7 is Paul saying, O wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? The apostle Paul knows, he knows your situation apart from the Spirit's presence. Okay, two, what's the second step? The first step's the bad news. The second and third step is the good news. The second step in appropriating the Spirit's power and the Spirit's authority is to receive the Spirit. It's to open up your hands of faith, to receive the Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ, in what he has done for you. And in this passage, sometimes we just say, believe, believe, believe. There are specific things that you need to believe. Let me point out three. One. You must believe that the Spirit is more powerful than your sin. Amen. The Spirit is more powerful than your sin. Because when you're in the sin, you're like, this thing is beating me up. It's beating me down. There is something at your disposal that is more powerful than that thing. The only thing that can save you from death is that which is more powerful than death, the one who has conquered death. The only one that can save you from yourself has to be the one that is outside of yourself. You can't just pull your resources. You can't just, it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come um, by something that you could do. It comes from a divine intervention, a work of God. Look at verse 3. God has done. God has arrived God is at work. What has he done? He did what even the law couldn't do. Now we have another use of the word law, okay? This gets pretty complicated. Just hang with me. Here what we're talking about is the law that God gave to Moses to the Israelites. And do you know how powerful that law was? That law was so powerful that God etched it by his very finger onto these tablets of stone, It was so powerful that Moses received it in a cloud of glory on top of the mountain, and the Israelites couldn't even go anywhere near the mountain lest they die. That's how powerful God's law was. But it could not do one thing, and that's break the power of sin. Okay? Think about this. It could condemn sin... In the sense that it makes a declaration and says, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin, stop doing that, that's sin. But it didn't have the power and the authority to actually erase the sin, to eradicate the sin, to do something with the sin by breaking its power. But God, in his spirit, can do those things. Okay, here's the second thing. This is how he broke its power. The second thing that you need to believe is that the Spirit is the Spirit of the risen Christ. And what I'm thinking about here is verses 3 and 4. I'm also thinking of verses 11 and 12, and I'm not going to read all of them. But what I want you to see is that God has done what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, by sending his own son. Jesus came as a man. Jesus experienced the temptations that you face. He knew the hardships and the suffering and the difficulty. Each one that you may go through. And he resisted those temptations, which is enough to be for us to be amazed by you want a resource for help in your fight against sin look to the one who himself resisted and then he took those things on himself he suffered for those things and took the weight on, on himself to destroy those things. Because once that that condemnation fell onto him, once that punishment fell onto him, it could not and would not fall on anyone else that was ever found hidden in him. And he takes his spirit and he transfers it over to you. And he gives you his righteousness. He gives you his life. See, look at verse 9. It says, You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and he's saying it does. He's saying, since the Spirit dwells in you. And in verse 11, he says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life. And that leads to the third thing that you should believe about the Spirit. You must believe that the Spirit takes up residence inside you, which is the thing that everybody should just go home and sit around and think about. Okay? God himself, who appeared in glory... God himself in clouds and thunder and lightning, God himself who could create the entire universe, God himself who would redeem his people, visits you and enters into you by the power of his spirit so that the help is now right next door. The help is nearby. The help is not far away. It is actually in you by the power of that comes from the Spirit, and so you have the resources. And this has tons of of ramifications, Um, and and I can't list them all. I'm just going to give you a couple here. But one, he's going to start convicting you of sin, and it's going to be specific things. It's not that vague general guilt. That's kind of Dobby's fault. He's like, oh, I'm terrible. I'm an awful person. I don't know what to do. But when the Spirit comes, the Spirit says, here is the specific thing that I want you to deal with. And we're like, we start freaking out. We're like, no, I can't, I can't deal with that. I can't, I can't handle that. I'm not sure what to do. But what he's doing is he's, he's dredging up that stuff like pond scum so that he can sweep it away, so that he can cut it off and cut it across. Um, I recently prayed a prayer to ask Jesus to show me more of my sin. It, it hasn't been a very good week. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to see who you are and who you stand before Him, apart from Him, ask Him, show me specific sins. Show me specific things that I have done. And suddenly I realize, man, do I want your, your all's approval? Do I love acceptance and want it more than I want to rest in the living God so that it makes it hard to have difficult conversations Hard to say hard things. I don't want to offend people. Man, have I realized that that one beer after dinner, which I thought I loved because it tastes really good, I also cling to because I feel like it frees me from anxiety. You know what I mean? So, like, God's saying, hey, I'm the Lord of glory, I demand your worship. And I'm like, show me my sin. And he says, yo, you worship other people. All these other people who change their minds all the time and are very fickle. And you worship a what can be contained in a little bottle. And he says, you need the saving, cleansing power that comes only from my spirit. And to rest in that spirit You know, I stand up and call people to speak the name of Jesus to their neighbors. And how many times this week I realize there's my neighbor and I'm walking the other way. And how much I want to avoid them as the spirit of sin wells up within me. I could go on. (laughs) I could go on. But here's what's happening. If the spirit's inside you, he can change the thing that is deep down inside you. That even a change in behavior won't handle and won't deal with. So there's hope. There's hope for me in all of those things. I can say those things to you guys because I want to get rid of those things. I want to be rid of them. Jesus' blood. Jesus, will you pour your blood over those things and cast those things aside? I need to get rid of those things. I don't want to be. I don't want those things to to, to continue to plague me. And um, I was thinking about. Paul Tripp, who always um, likes to tell this story about what we try to do when we're trying to fix our sin, is we try to take a tree, an apple tree that won't uh, bear any fruit, and what we usually do is we take apples and we just, like, staple them to it. You see what I mean? That's what we're doing. So we're like, okay, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to do this behavior, that behavior, this behavior, that behavior. But God says, I put my spirit in you so it's right next to your heart and it's gonna—it's not going to staple things there. It is going to, I'm going to uproot that heart. I am going to transform that heart. I'm going to give you a whole new tree that is going to grow and develop and there's going to be fruit. And my glory is going to go forth and my kingdom is going to advance. But you have to open your hands to the spirit and invite me In And I'm going to bring structural, lasting change to your heart and to your life. We are not just sweeping cobwebs out. We are not just painting the front of the door so that we can sell the house. He is rebuilding this house. Amen. He is rebuilding this house. So open yourself to the Spirit. Open yourself to the Spirit. Ask Him to show you specific sins. Develop a relationship with Him. Let's look at the third thing. The third thing is not only knowing how much you need, it's not only opening your hands in faith and believing specific things about him, it's also yielding to his power, submitting to his spirit. So sometimes then we say, open, open hands of faith, okay, I don't have to do anything. That means that that, that there's nothing involved here, but that's counter to what's happening in this passage, I believe. It's counter to what's happening Because faith, even though it's passive, even though you're resting, it's like a restless wrestling. So um, uh, Richard Gaffin used to say, faith is restless resting. Or you may have heard Francis Schaefer say, um, it is a passive, an active passivity. And what do those things mean? I just want to point out a few. First of all, Paul's calling you to walk by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with that same Spirit. Align yourself to where the Spirit is. Like, you're the boat, and the wind is coming, and you've set your sail in the direction of the wind so that it can push you along, and it can blow you along. And I know in verses 4 through 8 that Paul is largely descriptive, but there is an implicit call, an implicit call to walk by the Spirit. So basically what he's doing is saying there's a whole group that you, you, you either are walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the flesh, you're living by the Spirit or you're living according to the flesh, and he's saying, walk, walk according to the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. I have a friend who um, works in the city and walks everywhere. He doesn't bike and he doesn't drive, and he walks really fast. I don't know if it's just from years of walking all over the place. And anytime I'm with him in the city and I'm walking around, I always have to keep up. You know, I'm kind of like having to, I have to concentrate on what's happening. I have to follow. I have to move. I have to be guided so that I can keep up with him and even have a conversation. And that's the picture of what's happening as the Spirit's moving in our lives. We, we move along with him and keep in step with him. Okay. Number two. Paul also says, you set your mind on the Spirit. So how do you walk according to the Spirit? Put your mind on the things of the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And it took me a while to arrive at this place. And I still may be reading into the text, so all the seminary students can come up at the end and tell me if I was wrong. But um, I really believe that the way to set your mind on the Spirit is through prayer. What is prayer? To Paul and to the other New Testament writers, it is appropriating the Spirit's power. It's that picture of restless resting, because what are you doing in prayer? You're saying, I open myself up to you. I invite you to come and work. I can't do it. I have to rely dependently upon you. And think about it. At Pentecost, they pray for boldness, and the Spirit shows up. Later in Acts 4, they pray for boldness. The Spirit fills them, and they're preaching the gospel, and things are happening. And Luke, uh, you know, in Luke, Jesus tells the disciples, pray for the Spirit, and I'll give you the Spirit. There's this connection between prayer and the Spirit, which um, I'm really indebted to, to the writings of Jack Miller for. That's where I'm stealing all of this from and i haven't myself totally gotten it but i do know that the call is to walk in the spirit set your mind according to the spirit and be filled with prayer in seeking his guidance and his direction admitting your need and following him allowing these things to be true to, to be true in my life and then thirdly we walk by the spirit set your mind on the spirit through prayer and then obey. Obey. And this is the crazy thing, because you've got crazy freedom. No condemnation. You're not a house elf anymore. You're not a slave. You're not trapped in the trash compactor. You, you know, So your sins don't have any power or any hold over you, but that is not so that you can continue sinning. It's not so that you can continue sinning. Paul is inviting you to follow the Spirit into obedience to Christ that you find in Christ's law. I don't have time to get into um, Paul's understanding of the law and the spirit. I had a remarkable discovery this, this week as I was thinking about this passage, and I felt like all sorts of passages in Paul and Galatians and 2 Corinthians and everywhere kind of became really clear, so much so that I was in the shower, like, thinking about these things. I forgot to wash my hair. (laughs) I I was so amazed. I went around the rest of the day, and I was like, I had an epiphany in the shower. She's like, yeah, you didn't wash your hair. (laughs) And uh, if you want to come talk to me about this, you can. I guess I'll really briefly say that this is what I think it looks like. It looks like this. God's character is holy. And God's law reveals his character, so his law is holy. And the Spirit reveals God's character, so the Spirit is also holy. Okay? That means they're all on the same side. They're not against each other. But now that the Spirit has come, it should have condemned you. You see that? If the Spirit is holy, we think the Spirit is only good. It should have been condemning too, but it enters into you. That which should have blown you apart is in you. God himself... You know, remember at Pentecost, the fire that came down upon them? It should have burned them to pieces. It should have burnt them to pieces. Instead, it says, I will rest in you and move you and guide you and shake you. And then what happens to the law? Suddenly, there's a dichotomy. It looks like the law is a dead letter, which is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. looks like a dead letter. Why? Because you're moving and shaking, and you're doing the things the law is asking you to do without even having to think about it or resort to it. A guy named Terry Eagleton compares this to becoming fluent in a language. Becoming fluent in a language. So think of this. If you're going to Mexico and you want to learn Spanish, you've got your dictionary, right? And you're flipping through it. Your dictionary, you've got to look up this word and that word and this word. But once you become fluent, you don't have to go back again and again and again to look at the dictionary. Why? Because you don't need the dictionary. That would be redundant because you're fluent in Spanish. The law is like that dictionary. And having the Spirit doesn't set you against the law. It makes you fluent in the law. It enables you to obey the law. It empowers you to do God's will and his purposes in ways that you never before could. And so we ask ourselves, have I become fluent? Have I become fluent in his law? My final conclusion is this. I don't think we need to know much more than we already do. But like Julie said... If I understood it the right way, I'd be a different person. Invite the Spirit to make you a different person. Invite the Spirit to show you some sin this week. Tell that sin to somebody else. Learn to confess. Learn to repent. Learn to throw yourself on Jesus. Learn to invite his Spirit in. Learn to invite his Spirit in and pray and pray and pray and go forth. go forth and stir one another on to obeying. You've got the context there. You've got the home meetings. Go to the home meetings. Stir each other up in those home meetings, in the Spirit's power to obey. Stir each other up to pray kingdom-focused prayers that his will would be done in our lives and our hearts. What's my prayer for you? What's my prayer for you? It's that you would see the Spirit in you and be totally amazed and be totally blown away, that you can't even look at your hand in the same way anymore because it's changing you and transforming you. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would make us more like you, that you would change us into your image, and we are weak, and we are not up to the task, and we're scared to death, and we don't know what it's going to mean. But we want to take one step of faith this week to open our hands, to believe the things you're calling us to, to repent of some real sins, to open up to the people around us and to see your spirit make some things happen that we never would have thought to imagine because we were dead and couldn't have thought of them. Make us alive. Make us alive right now. I pray that as we are um, taking communion and eating that bread and drinking that wine, as it goes into us that's how aware we would become that your spirit is in us. And
0: I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.